Uh, if you would, take your, this evening, take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. The book of Galatians was written in A.D. 48 to A.D. 49, uh, and it's the Apostle Paul's written discourse to a group of churches, actually, that were grappling with false teachers and their teachings, the false teachers' teachings, about the faith. And Paul seeks to remind them that salvation is by faith and by faith alone. But he doesn't just stop there. He also reminds them that faith is pivotal also for our life after salvation as well. And there are certain expectations that we must have or what, that are upon us uh, for living the life of faith. And so, again, I trust it will be a blessing to us as we are in Galatians chapter 6 this evening. I'll never forget the day that we brought it home. It was merely a shell. Some of the work had already been done, but it was basically a blank canvas. My senior year of high school, my younger brother and I, we began to get interested in cars, and specifically cars that needed restoration. And much to our delight, after we begged and pleaded with my parents, my parents actually thought it would be a good idea to have something like an automotive shop class for us as the boys. And so that conversation then began our quest to find the perfect vehicle to restore. And we started getting those different trader magazines, and we started looking online, and we started doing research. We looked at trucks, we looked at muscle cars, we even looked at a few exotic cars, but we settled on one particular vehicle, and you may chuckle, but we settled on a 1972 Volkswagen Super Beetle. And the reason we settled on that was, first off, my dad had, already, had always looked at those cars and kind of thought, those would be kind of a uh, cool car to work on. And since he was our instructor, we knew we needed the instructor to be really involved. And so that was one reason. But then also, we looked at the price, and relatively, they were, uh, they were low, low cost to purchase. Uh, they had simplicity to work on, at least that's what we thought going into it. Is that German engineering, that wonderful German engineering we had to figure out, but simplicity to work on overall, availability of parts, uh, potential for upgrades and customization, and so we saw all of those opportunities, and we were able to purchase in 1972, like I said, Volkswagen Super Beetle. Now, the excitement was high in the house when we went to go pick it up. We loaded it on a trailer, and we, we, we carried it, and we, we trailered it back to our house, and the excitement was very high. Uh, the car led us through many hours of research, careful engineering. Uh, if you ever want to know about the history of Volkswagen Super Beetles, you could talk to me and, and we can chat for a while on that. Uh, that. That car, again, led us through hours of work. There was brotherly camaraderie. It included building the engine in the basement, much to my mom's chagrin. Uh, it even then, as it started coming together, we had test drives without brakes. Um, that was fun. Uh, we broke different parts of the car and had to figure out why it was broken. We had to fix it. And there was countless hours of blood, sweat, and tears uh, that, that resulted. And really, as we were working, there was something that happened within my heart and actually within the heart of my brothers as well. And it resulted, all this work, 
It resulted in a love for restoration. Um, you know, I love driving a completed project. I really do. But probably more than just driving a completed project or seeing a completed project is I do love the process. I love the work that it takes to return a previously unusable item and even maybe perhaps discarded by someone else and to return it into use for which it was intended. See, for me, when I work on these projects, and I, and I couldn't help but think, as, as I have been working on other restoration projects since that, but I can't help but also think about the spiritual side of that. Because I think about the one who restores the souls of men often, as I'm in my garage and as I'm tinkering around. Oh, salvation brings me great excitement, and it ought to, and it should bring great excitement to all of us who have accepted Christ. But is that the end? And I think scripture is clear that salvation is merely the beginning of a process of transformation. And maybe even you could say restoration of a soul. Yes, you are declared in, in salvation, you are declared righteous, and you are a new creature. But that then begins the process of transformation into greater Christ-likeness. And when I think about how God transforms me and sanctifies me day by day from immaturity and failure into maturity and usefulness, I can't help but hearken back to the work then of an expert restorer. Have you ever seen maybe even a, a furniture restorer and all the care that is given and, 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 and the, the, the tools that are used and how they are used? And in the hand of that master, there's some really amazing results that happen. And when a restoration is done properly, we rightly wonder in amazement. And sometimes we may even say, well, I could never do that. You know, that's just, wow, that's amazing. There's no way I could ever, I could ever attain to something like that. But same, I would say probably the same thing is true with a life at times, too. We look at lives and we hear stories of transformed lives, and sometimes we're like, well, we could never play a part in that. But tonight, Scripture makes it clear that though God is the great restorer, he's the one who does the work. He has, though, chosen to use his people as agents of his restoration in the lives of those around us. And I will say that our tendency is that we are, in the midst of trouble, in the midst of difficulty, when there are people who are suffering and they are struggling, at least in my heart, the tendency of my heart is that we are quick to reject, we're, we're quick to refer someone, we're quick to gossip about each other when God has equipped us to instead help, to instead re uh, restore. And so tonight we're in Galatians chapter 6 and we need to come to understand that because the gospel transforms every part of our life, you must become a spiritual restoration specialist. For me, those times in the garage remind me of my sanctifying God. And I currently have several restoration projects, much to my wife's chagrin, but I, I am currently working on several things. And I wonder if we are actively playing our part in restoring lives. 
And this passage gives for us great information on the mandate and the process of restoration. And we need to understand first that because the gospel transforms our relationships and everything about us, we must play an active role in restoring people. You're in Galatians chapter 6, look at verse 1. It says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one. In the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. That is our text for the evening. We're going to break that verse down. We'll be in other passages, so you'll want to keep your, your fingers and your thumbs ready. But we need to understand that there is a mandate that has been given to each and every one of us as God's people. And that is to be active in the restoration of others, specifically other believers, when they need that restoration. We speak of this word restoration, and if you were to break down this verse, there's two verbs. The first one is that word restore. The second one is considering thyself. And so we'll break that down, but specifically the first word, restore. Restore, what is this idea of restoration? Well, ethically, it is to strengthen, it is to perfect, it is to complete, it is to make one what he ought to be. In this verse of Galatians chapter 6, it speaks of one who, by correction, may be brought back into the right way. And really, this is a command. It's an imperative. This is the command given to each and every one of us. If we sit here as blood-bought children of the Lord Jesus Christ, of, of God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, then we are called to do this restoration. Again, present, active, imperative. It's to be ongoing. It is to be something that we do. We are called to do this task. As we start looking at this idea of restoration, we do need to break down because there, before that word restore, such an one, you do have several different um, phrases that kind of help us break down who's involved and what's taking place. First off, we need to understand that as we do restore, this restoration is done in the face of sin. You see verse uh, 1 again, it says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault. Overtaken in a fault. You know, sometimes when we look at our fellow believers, we know that sin is not something that we should uh, spend time in. We should not be, as we are uh, growing in our greater Christ-likeness, sin should be becoming smaller and smaller in our life. And so we know that to be true, and oftentimes when we see a brother or sister and they make a choice to sin, sometimes we often recoil at that simply because we know, hey, that's not right, and and there's nothing wrong with that. However, sometimes we recoil to the point of we're not going to at all minister to that person. We almost get to a point where we want to shun or we want to put up walls. And so what this verse is talking about is if you have the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart, then our job is to reach out to that person. Our job is to follow or to chase after that person. And this restoration can sometimes be in the face of some very, very nasty, dirty stuff. 
it can be messy to be a restorer. Again, at the beginning process of restoration, if you have ever done any restoration, it can be very messy to the point where sometimes you will actually make a bigger mess before you clean it up and make it nicer. And sometimes we look at that situation and we see some of the effects of sin in the lives of the, the, the believers around us, and we kind of say, no, I don't even want to enter into that picture. I don't want to even go into that. And we, and we recoil from that. Because this restoration is done in the face of sin, that word overtaken or that phrase overtaken in a fault, that is the idea that a sin that is chosen before they took the opportunity to flee. Again, in our greater Christ-likeness, we should be minimizing sin in our life, but even for the most spiritually mature among us, there are still going to be times where we, whether through personal choice, we choose sin, Or we find ourselves reacting in a certain circumstance that is not Christ-like, and we fall into sin. Can I say, then, sinful humans sin? This should not shock us. But even believers still sin. We often put on a facade of righteousness. But often the most spiritually mature among us still falls into sin. Can I say, even as a pastor, I still struggle with sin. And we as believers, we still sin. And when that happens, what is the, what is the expectation? What is the norm? Are we supposed to just kind of float by ourselves? That, that brother who or a man that is overtaken in a fault, is he supposed to just languish? The verse seems to think, no. He says, if a, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual are to restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. We need others to help us to get back on the right path. Now, I have several uh, alumni from our youth group over here. Um, and uh, if there's teens that are listening online, they'll know this illustration because I've used it often. Have you ever watched a person Uh, when they are walking on a sidewalk, they're walking along, everything's fine. This is one of the things that, you know, this is not creepy, but this is one of the things that my wife and I love to do when we have no money or we have no time. (laughs) Uh, One of the things we like to do is we like to go and just watch people. They're fascinating. You just watch people and and not in a creepy way, you're just watching them and, and you watch them as they interact with one another. And one of the things we used to like to do when we had no money is we would go to the mall and we would just sit and we would, we would watch people and they would chat and converse and all that and we, it was just an enjoyable time and um, one of the things that's fascinating to watch also is when someone trips okay so they're walking along and everything's great and they trip and oftentimes if there's nothing really that they tripped on the amazing thing is is what does the person typically do they trip and then there's if they're okay then they typically will chuckle or they'll laugh and then they will look back to look at see and see what caused them to trip. The funny thing is, is when there's nothing there. But anyway, um, they trip over their foot or something. And, um, but they're walking on the sidewalk, same thing. They trip and they fall. And sometimes we would just kind of look at that and say, oh dear, well, I'm, they, they caught themselves, that's awesome. But what happens when they trip and they fall and they actually wipe out? They actually fall and... and, and 
potentially harm themselves. One of the things that needs to take place is others come to their rescue, right? And it's interesting, one of the thoughts at first is, quick, get them up. They want to be, they want to get back. And sometimes you say, well, no, just sit there, make sure you're okay, and, and all that. And then what do you do? You help them get up. And spiritually, I believe it's the exact same illustration. You're walking on the sidewalk of sanctification. You're going in the right direction. You're serving the Lord. And then what happens? You trip. You fall. And what happens then? You need people to come along and lift you back up onto the sidewalk of sanctification so you can proceed to grow into greater Christlikeness. That is the idea of Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. And the question is, is are we paying attention to those around us that when there is a believer who trips, falls, falls into sin, are we quick to go down and to check on them and to help them and to restore them to a position of usefulness? Again, this, is, this can happen in the face of some very uh, difficult circumstances. It's done in the face of trespass, sin, overtaken in a fault. That means caught in a transgression. A cross-reference to this verse is James chapter 5 and verse 16, where it says, Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. You know, oftentimes we don't like to admit our faults. But if we're in the body of Christ together, can I say we get the opportunity to help our fellow believers when they trip and fall off the sidewalk of sanctification? We get to go and we get to help out that individual and to restore them, to bring them back. I would say this sometimes flies in the face of our American church culture. You know, you mess up, you're out, man. You're, you're nothing to me. But really, if we have those among us who have struggled, then we should be very quickly, quick to come alongside and to help and to restore and to bring them back to a place of usefulness. So this restoration is done in the face of sin, but also this restoration is to be done by a certain group of people. This verse says, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, then you have the phrase, ye which are spiritual should restore such an one. This restoration is is to be done by spiritually mature believers. You have words like brethren in this verse. You have words like the spiritual. And they function as ones, the ones who are to be doing the, the counseling, the restoring. This is often when we wonder if we're able to do something like this. We sometimes sit back and we think, ah, I don't know. You know, I've, I've never had counseling classes. I've never had a class in restoration. And in many of us, instead, we want to look, can I say, at secular professional counselors in therapy. But can I say God's word seems to disagree with this sentiment? In fact, if we understand the sufficiency of what we have in Christ, then even this idea of professional secular counseling can actually or should actually cause us to recoil from it. In fact, if you 
actually understand the sufficiency of what we have in Christ. Think about this. God's word is sufficient. Go over to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. We need to see these verses. Because I think in our, again, American church culture, we tend to minimize the sufficiency of God's word to transform a life. But Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 flies in the face of that tendency. Probably well-known verses. But Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, it says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's word is very clear that it is sufficient to be able to transform. In my Bible, and at the end of verse 12, I have underlined, it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. If my heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, as Scripture says, then the, the last phrase of that verse, who can know it? Sometimes we don't even know the depths of our own depravity. But can I say God's word does? Can I say that God's word is actually a discerner of the thoughts and intents of my own heart? I might not even know what my heart is thinking or where it's going. I might even fool my own thinking. But God's word is never fooled. God's word knows. God's word makes it clear what is happening. So God's word is quick. It is powerful. It's able to discern the thoughts and intents of my heart and your heart. So God's word is sufficient. Another verse is 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. You can go over there. 2 Timothy 3 and uh, verse 16. Second Timothy 3. In verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable. That word profitable means it's capable. It's sufficient for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That list there, for doctrine, that means God's word teaches us what's right. For reproof, God's word teaches us what's wrong. For correction, God's, teaches us how, God's word teaches us how to make it right. And then for instruction in righteousness, God's word teaches us how to keep it right. So God's word teaches us all of those things. It's sufficient. And then here's the result. Look at verse 17. That the man of God may be perfect. That word perfect means mature, complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. God's word is sufficient to help us to do what God has called us to do. So God's word is sufficient. What about God's salvation? Is God's salvation sufficient? Well, yeah, it's sufficient to completely transform us. The gospel transforms everything. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, you don't have to go there. Probably you could quote it. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's what? A new creature. The old has passed away. The, it, all things have become new. And that's what we have in Christ. That is our reality if we stand here as God's children. 
And so you might say, I don't know if I have the ability to restore such an one. I don't know what that means or what that might look like. But can I say the Apostle Paul is confident in you? And you might say, what do you mean by that? Well, the last passage, go over to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. We're going to look at verse 14. Romans chapter 15. And then verse 14. Romans 15, 14 says, And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that you are also full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish. And that word admonish is actually the word for counsel or restore. Able also to admonish or to counsel one another. Paul was confident that you having the Holy Spirit and the word of God would do a better job of restoration than secular humanistic philosophy. In the Roman world, there were a lot of Roman answers to the world's problems. Can I say, the Apostle Paul was not confident in the Roman answer. The Apostle Paul was confident in the life of the believer, taking God's word, having the Holy Spirit, and taking God's word to transform and to restore. Can I say, beloved, you are able to restore. Can I also say, you must restore. This is the command given to us again. And I believe that for far too long, the church has farmed out the spiritual care of its members. And it has severely weakened the body. I almost, I was looking, I was thinking about trying to go out and find the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that the American Psychology Association, the APA, has put together. And I wanted to bring it in here, and I wanted to put it on the pulpit, because I wanted you to see, this is a 1,500-page document that is now in its fifth iteration. And then I wanted to put God's Word over here. And I wanted to hold up the differences and I wanted you to see that this over here is man's wisdom and they don't know why we do what we do. And then I wanted to open up God's word and show you that God's word makes it clear why we do what we do. And if he is the one who created us and he is the one who formed us and he's the one who engineered us and he's the one who gave us the mind and he's the one who gave us these emotions, then shouldn't we go to him for answers? Shouldn't we allow him to say how we should live? Shouldn't we allow him to be the one who helps us come out of the difficulties of this life? All of us have gone through great difficulty over the last two years, three years. Can I say God's word, and I am confident on this, God's word has the answers to every single one of our problems. And that is where we should rest. And that is what we should know. Can I say there are countless thousands of methodologies of how man wants to fix you. But God has one way. And that way is the way through Christ through the word of God, transforming us into greater Christ-likeness. And that's sufficient. That's enough. And that's what Galatians chapter 6 is talking about.
Beloved, you are able to restore. You must restore. Think about this. In essence, when a, sec- when a believer goes to a secular therapist, for the believer, that is receiving spiritual guidance from a spiritually dead individual. Now, pastor has been speaking before we had all of the cancellations and and all that. Pastor's been speaking of how we are competent to lend aid and to counsel one another on Wednesday nights. And can I say, this is yet another passage, another verse that places the responsibility on our shoulders. Can I encourage you then? Because if you might, you might sit there and say, okay, I see, the, I see the expectation, I see the imperative, and I don't know if I'm ready for that. Can I then say, can I encourage you to take opportunities to learn how to counsel your fellow believer? I've had the privilege to teach counseling at Birmingham Bible Institute several semesters, and I love those classes. And I love taking an individual who's ready and wants to learn how to help someone with their difficulties. And I love watching them go from the beginning of the semester and transform them over time simply using God's word. And at the end saying, Pastor Nate, I didn't know that I was that competent to help. Again, it's not necessarily, it's not us. (laughs) It's God's word. But can I encourage you to take opportunities to learn counseling? Learn the process. Learn how to go through. How many of us have ever had friends who've called us on the phone and said, listen, my, my, my life is a mess. I'm struggling in this area. I need help. And more so now in the last two years. Are you ready to receive a call like that? Are you able to then say, you know what, God's word has something to say about that. Let's go talk about that. Let's get together. We'll we'll work on this. That's what we're expected to do. We're to help the fellow believer get back on the sidewalk to sanctification. Can I say, the pastoral staff here, our desire is to give you the tools needed to be able to have those phone calls, to be able to have those, those times where you sit down and you help. Our job as pastors is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And we want you to have the tools to be able to field those phone calls, to take those emails, so that you are able to help your fellow believer. Can I say I'm very passionate about this? And if you ever need help, please call me, email me. We can work with you so that you can be a competent helper. Can I say... Counseling is theology applied to life. And what better place than to hear about how to help someone than from your pastor? And so that's why we're here. That's why uh, we want to help you help others. And so, beloved, we've been confronted with a mandate for counseling. But how we counsel is just as important as that we counsel. So how should we? Because we have in our verse, the verse doesn't end. It says, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such in one. And then he doesn't just stop there. It continues on. It says, restore such in one. How? In the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. 
So we need to be careful sometimes when we have the opportunity to counsel someone, anytime you have knowledge, the tendency of knowledge is to puff us up. Scripture makes that clear. And so in that case, when we are helping our fellow believer, there's a tendency, and the tendency is for us to be a little bit arrogant. Well, you know, you're struggling in that area? Well, let me help you out with this. And that's the tendency. And so right after that command to help, we now have a stipulation. It says we are, to com- uh, we are commanded to help, but we're to do it in a certain way. In the spirit of meekness, we need to understand, secondly, that because the gospel transforms every part of us, we must restore in the right way. The restoration then is done with meekness. This idea of meekness is strength under control. And I started thinking about that in relation to counseling. And I started thinking about the illustration of a, sh- a shepherd when he shears his sheep. If a, if a sheep does not get sheared, and we've seen illustrations of this. I, I've seen a couple YouTube videos of a sheep that has wandered off and gotten lost. And it's been years since that sheep has been sheared. If you look at that poor sheep, the sheep can't see, the sheep can't eat, the sheep can't function. And what needs to happen is that all of that stuff needs to be cut off. Now, when that sheep comes back to the shepherd, the shepherd has a moment in time to decide, is he going to skin that sheep or is he going to shear that sheep? There's a difference. The shepherd could look at that sheep and say, he's a lost cause. You've done terrible, you unwise sheep. You're done. And he could end the life of that sheep. Or he could sit there and say, let's go and let's restore you. And let's restore you by cutting all of this stuff off of you and restore And what's an amazing thing is later on, that same sheep will then go and will begin to grow new wool. And then you can shear that sheep again. And then you can shear that sheep again. Can I say spiritually, oftentimes when someone comes to us and they say, I'm struggling in this area, the tendency is to to skin that sheep, to skin that person, to say, well, you, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. You ought never have been, and you might be saying the truth, But we have to say it in love. We have to say it, as this verse lays out, in meekness. It's power under control. You might be able to take God's word and browbeat that person. And you might be right the whole time. But really what is expected from Galatians chapter 6 is that we are putting strength under control And with the advent of, can I say, social media as an illustration, one can cut and slice and declare truth without the support and love that makes the truth receptive. I think we have to really be careful the way that we present ourselves and the way that we do share truth to where we are meek. We must be careful to restore in meekness. But also, there's one other part We must also be careful to restore uh, understanding that we could fall the exact same way. And the verse continues, it says, Restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, 
This is the action. We sit down and we think about this. We understand our own tendencies of our own heart, lest we also be tempted in the exact same way. We must be humble as we seek to help our fellow believer. We could all fall in the exact same way. We're susceptible to any sin at any time. Sometimes we get a little prideful and we think, well, I've overcome that, I'm done with that. But we need to remember that we could fall at any time. And we must tread not in arrogance or pride, but in, lowly, in a lowly heart, knowing that we could fall the same way. Can I say, and can I ask, are there people who maybe would be afraid to talk to you? Maybe a little bit nervous about asking, you know, and declaring, you know, I'm struggling in this area. Why? Because maybe you've fleeced or you've, you've skinned them before. Are you meek and are you humble? Have you considered that we too can fall just like they do? And so in this verse, in this one precious verse, we have the expectation and then also a little bit of the process. Now there's far more that we could say and there's far more that we could go to, other passages we could go to. But as we kind of wrap it up this evening, I remember watching this one particular show for the first time when I was a child. I was sitting in my grandparents' living room <clears throat> and since its inception in 1997 on PBS, because that's what my grandma and grandpa would watch, <laughs> was a show called Antiques Roadshow. It was the first time I'd ever seen anything like this, and it was uh, a show of appraisals. If you've ever seen the show, you know what I'm talking about. And since its, show, uh, since its inception in 1997, uh, the Antiques Roadshow has appraised over millions of dollars of treasured items. And though not every item is a national treasure, I'll never forget the time that an older gentleman brought what looked like a plain striped blanket into the roadshow. He was asked where he got the blanket and how much he thought the blanket, the blanket was worth, uh, to which the older gentleman gave the history as best as he uh, understood it, uh, but followed that up by saying he had no clue to its value. This was then followed by the appraiser declaring that he had never before seen anything on the roadshow like it. And that this rather plain blanket was in fact a Navajo chief's blanket. And it was incredibly rare and valuable. And at that point, you know, if you've seen the show, then they will put a value on that. So we're all kind of like, oh. And we all lean forward thinking, okay, what's going to be the value? That blanket was worth one and a half million dollars with the potential of going up to three quarters of a million dollars. And understandably, the owner declared that he was shocked, okay, and we're all just like, wow, that's amazing. But what he said next actually blew my mind even more than the price tag. And what the owner declared was that this blanket was simply thrown over the back of a chair. And that's the way that it lived its life. He, basically, he admitted that he had this incredibly valuable American treasure. And it was draped over a common chair, open to the possibility of damage getting sticky, getting spilled on. I don't know what happened to the gentleman. I don't even know what happened to the blanket. But can I say, I'm fairly certain that that blanket had a different lifestyle after the Antiques Roadshow. It would no longer be draped over a chair. 
He had viewed the item walking into the convention center one way, but he walked out viewing it in a whole new light. And when that information became clear, it changed everything. He was now going to restore that blanket to its rightful position. He was going to treat that blanket with the care and dignity that it deserved. I got to thinking of that situation in the realities of the gospel. If we sit here today redeemed through the blood of Christ, we have been entrusted with the responsibility, the privilege to care for our fellow believers. We can't just set them aside. We can't just allow them to continue to be in danger. But as we have learned tonight, we have the responsibility to restore them to their position of usefulness in Christ. We must not reject, we must not refer them, we must not gossip about them, but we are called to restore them in a humble spirit, understanding too that we can succumb to the exact same sin. Why? Because we do this because it's the task of every single disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so tonight... Can I ask you, do you have someone you are helping to restore? If not, can I say, can I encourage you? Please pray. Pray for an opportunity to restore a fellow believer. You might say, Pastor Nate, I'm not ready for that yet. I don't know if I'm mature enough for that yet. Can I encourage you then to take the steps necessary so that you are ready to restore your fellow believer when you receive the phone calls or when you take those emails or those text messages, or those social media posts? Are you restoring such an one? If not, we must get busy helping our brothers and sisters in Christ. It is our responsibility. We are, call, we are called to restore to usefulness those of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Are you actively helping in that area? I think it's high time that the church recognizes the value of the gospel, and we live our lives in accordance to it. Would you bow together in prayer with me, please? With every head bowed and every eye closed, I don't know where you sit. I don't know if maybe you are crying out, wishing someone would help you. Maybe you're here and you thought, you thought, you know, I don't, I want to help, but I don't know how. Maybe this is completely new. You're, you're just now realizing that you have this responsibility. I don't know where you sit, but can I say, in the next few moments, we're going to have an opportunity for you to get the help that you need, whether that is just between you and the Lord, whether that is coming forward, whether that is uh, grabbing one of the pastors afterwards, but I want to encourage you to not walk out of here the same as when you came in. We have this responsibility. Let's get busy helping. You may sit here and you may not be a believer. You may sit here and you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. Can I say specifically tonight was mostly for believers. But if you sit here tonight, the thing that you need more than restoration is you need salvation. And so I would encourage you to take Christ as your Savior. And you do that by accepting that you are a sinner, calling out, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then declaring and asking that he would come into your life and wash away your sins. He promises that if you do that, he will transform you. You will be a new creature. 
And so if you're here and you're unsaved, I encourage you to accept Christ. If you need help, come forward. We'd love to take the word of God and help you so that you know your sins are forgiven and that you have a place in heaven and that you are a new creature. I've always heard if God's word is faithfully preached, all people must respond. And so I want to give you some time to do that. I'm going to pray here in a second, and then we're going to have a song. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its sufficiency. We thank you for the sufficiency of your salvation. Lord, we are your children. And with that comes a great privilege. But Lord, also we have seen this evening comes great responsibility. Lord, I don't know of the struggles that are present in the room, those watching online. Lord, would you help us as your people to be sensitive to the needs of those around us? Lord, would you help us to help one another, taking your word and the Holy Spirit? And Lord, we do ask that you'd help us to be restoration specialists. Lord, if there's one here who's yet, who's yet to accept Christ, Lord, we ask that you would draw them to yourself, that tonight would be the night of salvation for them. Lord, we ask that you would work, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.